when you're looking at the population of Afghanistan as a whole, you've got some statistics say that, you know, it's 64% of the population is under 25. It's just going to be extraordinary in some ways to see, you know, what those young people will do, you know, where they're headed. This population has has only known the, this other type of government. Welcome to Political Contessa. I'm Jennifer Nassor, and this show is here to support your interest in center-right politics, policy, and breaking news. Listen in and discover how to awaken your inner ideal candidate. And if you're ready, how you can jump in and change the world as a runner or a supporter. Welcome to Political Contessa. If you or a friend have ever considered running or you know a woman who should, I've got something just for you. My quick guide called Secrets from the Campaign Trail. It will show you five signs to tell you you're ready to enter the political arena. To get these tips and learn about all new podcast episodes and ways to get involved, head over to politicalcontessa.com. I am so happy to have a really, really good friend, a colleague for a long time, but also my partner in my venture pocketbook project with me here on Political Contessa. It is Christina Bain. Christina has made a public service career beginning from presidential campaign trials and the halls of the Massachusetts State Legislature. She's been working in politics and elections for over two decades and has worked on numerous campaigns, local, state, and national. She's also served on our Massachusetts Republican State Committee, which is no small task and also is an elected office. The elections are held with the presidential primary. So every four years. So you actually have to campaign, you have to fill out the paperwork, you have to get your name on the ballot. So there's a whole process there. But she, so she is a campaign operative, but more interesting than her actually getting to work with me day to day is that in her other career, she is a human trafficking expert. And in that is where I just, I marvel at what Christina does professionally for work because it's, it's exhausting and it takes a toll on your emotions in dealing with different trafficking situations. So what I wanted to discuss with her today is, well, one, the Southern border, which don't, we're going to have to get back to that one. But what I want to discuss with her really today is what's going on in Afghanistan, because I'm a mom, I have daughters, and I found that when I heard that men were marrying young girls, very young girls, and taking them out of Afghanistan, my stomach was turning. And I'm sure yours is too. It's a disgusting thought and terrible thought. And this is one of those cases, again, that I think to myself, you know, I might not agree at all with the Biden administration's handling of Afghanistan from a foreign policy perspective. 
I think it's tragic that 13 lives were lost outside of the airport in Kabul. And I think that he was asleep when he was getting the intelligence about Afghanistan and the Taliban and what to do. I can't imagine we pulled out all those people and all the lives that were lost and the people who are being tortured and tormented and the severity of their situations. But Christina deals with it on an everyday basis. And she is instrumental in working with various agencies, government and others in trying to help people out of Afghanistan and trying to also help them find better place to be where they're going to be safe. So today I am so excited to introduce my good friend, Christina Bain, as my guest. So thank you, Christina, for being with me on this episode of Political Contessa. I'm so excited to have you with me to talk about some stuff going on in Afghanistan that is quite disturbing. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. It's such a joy to always talk to you, Jen. You always have cutting edge topics and and great discussions. I love you. I'm so happy that you're here. So one of the things that is really Concerning is, you know, and I might go off on a little bit of a political tangent here before get into all the meat of what you're going to talk about. But looking at what happened in Afghanistan to me is a complete blunder or um, blunder is not even as far as I like to go with this negligence on the Biden administration for not not listening to the generals, pulling all the troops out. 13 service members that lost their lives, unfortunately, you know, but what we see there now also as, as women, for me, you know, as a mom, for you in the human trafficking is just horrific of what's going on over there. And, and to watch young women not be able to go to school, to watch young women who are forced into marrying old men because they they're taking them out of the country they're being trafficked it's it's so much more than just leaving a country to their own devices it's it's really a a travesty and so thank you for being here to to discuss it so why don't you you know, I mean, of course, I think you're the best and I and I marvel in everything you've done in, in human trafficking worlds. But why don't you kind of go through what's happening in Afghanistan and and stuff that you're working on? Because it's fascinating. Oh, thank you so much. And I love you, too. And thank you for giving me this opportunity to talk about my work and and focus areas. So so I I am. Presently, I'm in academia and I I focus on human trafficking, all forms of human trafficking, sexual trafficking, labor trafficking, and also organ trafficking. And what I've learned about Afghanistan and, and also not just in Afghanistan, but in other countries, you have this phenomenon of, of a tragic human rights issue of forced marriage of young girls in Afghanistan. There is one statistic that says that, you know, 57% 
of girls are married before the age of 19. They're younger as you go out into rural areas in terms of the age at which they marry. And it presents a challenge for on, on many levels. And you have women and girls, you have girls who are not able to access education, you know, because of, of their marriage situation. Also the physical harms and issues associated with being married so young from childbirth and not being fully developed. I mean, you know, some of the situations that I've read about globally, you know, you, you can have a child, you can have a child who's nine years old and is forced to wed. And, you know, there could be economic reasons. There could be, you know, there's a variety of, of, of things, you know, why this takes place. And, and there's a number of activists, human rights workers and others who are, you know, aggressively working on this issue. And, Additionally, in Afghanistan, you have a phenomenon of the trafficking of young boys, which is something we often don't talk about in the field as much. And it's the sexual trafficking of young boys. It's, it's something called Dancing Boys of Afghanistan. And there's actually a movie that's called that, The Dancing Boys of Afghanistan, where young boys are, are um, dancing in, in you know, different venues and they're also sexually exploited. So this is something that's also taking place and it's, you know, another human rights tragedy. So there has been conversation since the, the evacuations have taken place at risk Afghans from, from Afghanistan and everything that's been going on in the country since August, where you have these circumstances where we're hearing, you know, and, and some news outlets have been reporting about young girls who are, have been uh, given into marriage or sold into marriage uh, to get out of the country. You know, I, I don't have a, a clear case of this that I can point to, but there has been discussion in the media about this. And obviously that is also, you know, horrifically tragic. That is... Wow. I, I mean, the, the whole situation over there is something that we cannot imagine here in the U.S., nor do we really want to imagine it. I want to go back to this, that statistic about women under 19, the, the percentage of women who end up getting married that young is amazing. So I, I recently read that there are about 2.2 million young women in Afghanistan who do not attend school. And that sounds like an awfully high number for, for young women who aren't going to, to high school. Clearly, the Taliban has made it that much worse because they're now, you know, they, they can't drive, they can't go to school, they can't be educated. What, what are the what are the options over there? What's, what's happening? Are there any allies that are on the ground there that can help people either relocate, get out of Afghanistan safely, or is there any opportunity that, <laughs> this is funny, that the Taliban is going to actually moderate itself and, and not continue you know, the public lynchings and, and the other horrible terrorist acts that they pull on a constant basis? Well, there's, there are numerous NGOs and, and 
public private sector or entities that are engaged now with trying to look at what is is going to happen in Afghanistan post US evacuations and you know post US presence I should say too and I think that the you know the situation is so evolving on the ground I mean there's numerous humanitarian issues including just access to food and water at this point because you've got different people who are displaced uh, from the situation that started in August. So there are, are wonderful organizations that are working, you know, from around the globe to, to help with this. In terms of the situation with education, it, it, is, it is a national tragedy. And, and it's a tragedy that's not just in, in Afghanistan, it's in other countries around the world. And I think we take this for granted in the United States about the ability for women and girls to naturally educate themselves because that's not necessarily the opportunity still in other parts of the world. And, you know, often, you know, going to school can also be expensive. It can, there's a cost and a girl, you know, maybe they would in certain households and certain societies, maybe to educate the, the, the men and then the boys in the household first. Girls may be, you know, second-class citizens and they should be either sold off into marriage or sold off into other types of human oh, trafficking situations. kills me. Uh, you know, be, you know, but you can also have this with young boys as well. I mean, you can have, you know, young children in general who are sold off in large families and, and families in economic, you know, dire straits, you know, they're thinking of surviving and, and it's a catch me too, right? Because you have, in order to serve, in order to have a, you know, better life education would be the answer, right? But that also, you know, could cost money. It could be, traveling in a, at a distance to go to a school, transportation, you know, that type of a thing, they may not have access to that. So it's a, it's a complex situation and that we, you know, in our Western way of thinking, you know, it's just not something that's as doable in, in other parts of the world is. And so we have to work harder and smarter to look at how we can assist to, work in a culturally appropriate way to, to help, you know, to help foster, you know, better education and better lives for, for women and girls and, and children everywhere. Most definitely. I mean, you know, I think that that's when, when we see, you know, the, the humanitarian efforts to bring these folks over. I mean, I think that there's, you know, a a cohort going to Arizona and, you know, you see people coming here and you think about those numbers of women who have not been educated and now they come to the US and it's a whole new opportunity and new life but how do they how do you rebuild right when you don't have i mean we're not talking college right. we're not talking you know associate's degree or bachelor's we're talking high school you know we're talking anything maybe outside of elementary school and so i think it presents so many so many missed opportunities and so many hardships for them. And, you know, which one of them is relocating and going to a different country and not having the stability, not having your family, not, you know, having your your village and your town and, and the folks that you know from growing up. So let's go back to this forced marriage thing. So the stories seem to be atrocious of older men marrying 
young girls, right? I mean, how old are some of the youngest children that are married off? I mean, I talked about a case, I mean, I knew of a case of a nine-year-old. It wasn't in Afghanistan. It was actually in another country, but it was, you know, that can, you can have eight years. I've, I've heard of eight years old and, and the range of age of their husbands, it can be a variety of ages. I mean, you can have men, you know, as, as oh, old as God. 80, you can have, you can also have men in their teens and twenties. You know, it, it can be the men are, you know, often I've not found them to be close in age <gasps> for obvious reasons to the young brides. And, you know, in terms of the education piece too, there does seem to be a correlation based on some research that, you know, families who are, you know, if, if, if there is a forced marriage situation and, and families are, you know, if they're selling their child, their child into marriage or whatever the situation is, there is a predominant illiteracy rate. So you're, you're dealing with, you know, generations of, you know, you know, lack of education challenges with, you know, just literacy in general and, and basic reading and writing skills. So you, you see that correlation too, and that also impacts, you know, a child's future and, and, and then, you know, being forced into marriage. So the cycle so you know, continues. Are they, are, are these kids that are forced into marriage, are they, are they, with the person because they have some crazy sexual desire for a very young child, or is it that they are trying to use them in sex trafficking? Are they trying to make money off of them or are they, or do they plan on selling them off? And, and a lot of them do have more than one wife, right? So it's like, you know, are they just in their harem or are they, or are they pawning them off to other friends to make money? It can be, it can be all of the above. I mean, you can have systemic mm-hmm. abuse and torture and, and, you know, you can have forced marriage and then it's, it could be like a, a transit situation. And then they're, they're, you know, off to another trafficking scenario. You know, it can be, it can be different levels of this in the field that I've seen in terms of cases and, and things like that. I don't claim to be, I am not a forced marriage expert. I will say there are other colleagues in in the field that have studied this more closely than I have. And, uh, there are, there are some wonderful NGOs in the world who are actually working specifically to tackle this. And, and some of them are, you know, right now very much involved in what's happening, you know, post us presence in Afghanistan. And and so do you think that, on the trafficking end though, do you think that what we see going on in Mexico or coming over the Mexican border where, you know, drug mules are, you know, running over the the wall with, you know, jumping, jumping fences with seven-year-olds on their backs. Are we going to see that same situation happen in Afghanistan where you know, people are, are set, are told, come with me, I'm going to get you out safely. And then they get trafficked in other countries. And, and where are people going from Afghanistan? I mean, are they, are they leaving legally or are they doing the same thing, trying to run across the border? Those are really interesting questions. I, I would say that in terms of where they're going, it's a variety of places. First and foremost, it's it's not just, you know, obviously we hear in the news because we're in the U.S. We hear of, you know, different Afghan nationals and others who are seeking, 
you know, help and assistance here in the United States and, and to ultimately relocate. But not necessarily. You have Europe, you have Australia, you have other countries in Africa and others around the world who are, you know, working together to, to also assist Afghan evacuees. And in terms of the trafficking piece, I would say that, you know, I think a lot remains to be seen about how we're going to see this phenomenon, you know, you know, play out. I mean, you can have situations and, and I think we've heard anecdotally, you know, in the news about situations where, you know, have young girls been trafficked out at this point, you know, because of the chaos. I, I don't have one confirmed case that I can, you know, point to, but obviously when you have chaotic humanitarian situations and, and crises, you know, you, you can have, you're always at risk for things like this when you have the immediate migration and forced migration and, or, you know, just displacement and movement of people in masses, you know, that's where you, you can certainly have trafficking and you can have trafficking in all forms. I mean, you see this also with natural disasters, with things like earthquakes and tsunamis and, and others, you know, anytime that there's a chaotic movement of individuals and, you know, people and family, you know, you can, you can have circumstances like trafficking, unfortunately. Is there any way that that is ever going to stop and any, you know, ways, ways that all of us could be involved to make sure that that stops? Sure. Well, we're certainly trying to mitigate it and, and educate wherever we can, you know, to try, you know, there's tremendous work being done and, and strides that we've made in the anti-trafficking space. I mean, I've been involved, you know, since the mid 2000s and it's, I, I've seen tremendous strides in the field. So I think that, you know, we're making progress every day and, you know, through awareness and education and, and, you know, actionable items and tools, you know, and, and looking at ways where we can, you know, assist and also, you know, truly educate people that, that, and, and not only, you know, educating ourselves, but educating, you know, every sector of, you know, whether it's, it's within the economy, you know, within government, within the civil, within civil society, you know, I, I think, you know, we will make a difference and we are making a difference and we can't, we can't eradicate it. I think, I think we can try our very best, but there's unfortunately always going to be evil in the world and there, and you're always going to have situations like conflict, but how we can best mitigate it is, you know, where we can shine, you know, and, and if we have, one case and, and one individual than we've helped, then, then we've done a great job, you know, for yeah, the time that no, we've that's, done it. That's awesome. That's such a good perspective. And, and hopefully there'll be more and more. I feel bad for all these young, young women who are in this situation. I mean, I find that when we're, you know, not educating women also, they end up being mm -hmm. in a very precarious situation, right? Because they don't know any better and they're not exposed. And for those young women who who have been able to go to school in Afghanistan, you know, not now as the end of their educational career, you know, when they're a junior, supposedly, you know, in their last couple of years of high school, and now they can't go to school, the emotional and mental effects on them mm -hmm 
I think are, are just so, so long-term because they have to figure out what to do. And, you know, maybe they didn't see themselves as getting married before they were 19 years old and, and maybe they, you know, had other hopes and ambitions for themselves. What, let's see. So are you working with anyone not that, I mean this, I don't want you to go on a limb and, and reveal any inside, inside information though. We'd love to hear as much as possible, but are you working with anyone in particular over there that you're trying to rescue and get out of there? And, and, or are there any stories of, of folks, you know, that you're working with of people that they're working with over there? Oh, thank you for that question. And, and the, you know, what I've been doing since, since August and because my work in human trafficking does naturally engage with certain stakeholders who have focused on Afghanistan, whether it's on training young women to run for public office, training lawyers, working with journalists. So I have encountered over the years in my career, you know, working with different individuals who've had more of an Afghanistan focus. So, so I have been working to help out where I can, particularly helping at-risk Afghan national women who have been elected to higher office, parliamentarians, uh, journalists, and other professional women. And, and one story and one family that I'm particularly working with right now is the family of a high-risk female journalist uh, who's in her 20s and was a law student, had her own media outlet and, and was, has, has like something like 5 million followers and, uh, and on YouTube and, and is just an incredible, incredible individual. And so she's presently right now in hiding. Her story is actually up on a website um, for an organization that I'm also working with called Awareness Ties Aware Now. It's an online platform for different social causes and, and social justice issues and really incredible work being done there, including a focus on human trafficking. And you can go and look at her story. It's, it's under 1 million. I am, she's reading a poem called I Am 1 Million Voices, the voices of Afghan women. And it is just so compelling. I hope one day, I hope one day she runs for public office. Yes. She sounds amazing. She's just, you know, an inspiration. And so we're doing everything that we can to try to help her right now. And, so in, and help in helping though, how, again, whatever you can, whatever you can disclose to us, but in, in helping, what is it that you can do? How can you help without the Taliban finding out? And if she's undercover, without exposing her or her feeling like she's being exposed? It's, it's very complicated. It's a very complex situation that changes every day. And first of all, you always want to work with the families and, and have their best interest in what they want at heart and their safety and their survival is the most important thing at the top. So it's, it's what, they ultimately wish and and what they need. And it can, and for some families, it can be their needs right now are food and water. Their needs are, you know, access to basic necessities. Some families 
need other types of things. I mean, you know, families are obviously seeking, some are seeking, reseeking resettlement. Uh, and it's a complex process because you have to look at visas depending on what countries they want to go to. You have to look at the rules of every, each government uh, and, and what also in terms of if, you know, if they, you know, the traveling piece, transportation, and then also funding and funding all of these different levels of keeping people safe and, and figuring out their journey is another piece to this. And there are numerous organizations right now raising money and raising funds. And, and then not only you have that, you have the ultimate resettlement piece. And I'm also working in the United States here on, you know, with one organization in particular on, you know, what does the resettlement piece look like and everything from being, you know, being, becoming acclimated to a new community in the United States. And, and you're thinking that you're, you could have people who are leaving literally with a backpack of clothing and that's what they have and, and they have to start out their lives again. So they need economic security. They need food security. They need a sense of community building, you know, mentoring, some mean language assistance, you know, everything that comes with, you know, settling into a new place and, and what all of that, you know, what all of that means in addition to mental health and, and healthcare needs. I mean, everyone has been through potentially significant trauma. And so how do you also, you need to look at, you know, health needs and, and mental health needs in particular. So there's all these different pieces to it. And, you know, it's important to go thoughtfully and carefully through each piece and working with really positive and knowledgeable actors in this space. I am not a humanitarian crisis expert and I lean on others daily who are to help and, and advise me on, you know, how to handle different situations. So it's, and there's a lot of also, and, and, and their contribution is, some of the most critical, most critically important are the veterans community. Those who are trained in, you know, military ops and working in these types of humanitarian situations are the best allies to have because they're the ones who've also been really, really assisting in this and, and have the knowledge and also the knowledge, potentially the country to go in and, and, you know, assist. And so that's, what's also really, really amazing and to assist, you know, where they can, you know, on it, you know, globally from wherever they're from. So, you know, it's, I think that's probably one of the things that people don't think of, you know, when, when everything first happened after the U S pulled out in, it's not just sending a plane and having people get on a plane and dropping them someplace, and I'm assuming it's not like, you know, witness protection, right? Where you, you're one person, they like plop you in the middle of a neighborhood and then you just assimilate into the neighborhood. You know, these, they're, they're moving people and they're taking their lives. They're uprooting them. They're bringing them someplace that they've never been before, most likely. And so are these, when you talk about settlements, like are there, have you heard anything about what the communities look like? I mean, are they just, are they just, building a new community of Afghanis that have been, have been, I want to say saved, 
but they've gotten out of the country? Are they building communities of them? Are they are people being spread all over the place? Is there is there a holding pattern for them? Do they have to wait a certain amount of time before they they can assimilate? And, and again, that's whether it's in the U.S. or in Australia or in Europe. Is there a process for this, or they just say, you know, here's your new life, good luck? No, there's definitely a process, and 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 you have some who are in different transit countries. For example, they're in a country that they may not ultimately stay in and that they'll settle in another country more permanently. And you have different military bases that are being, you know, used right now for screening and, you know, different things for all different, you know, purposes. And so they may be in a holding pattern for a bit, you know, in a, either in a camp or, you know, preliminarily in a base in the United States, you know, there are different cities and, and places around the country that, that are right now taking uh, evacuees right now. So in different cities and different places, you know, will ultimately be receiving more Afghan nationals who will be coming as well. So it's, it's all going in process. So we, you know, have right now the, the you know, like I said, the wave that came in you know, with the U.S. evacuations in August. And so though, you know, you've got those people who are in some type of a settlement phase here in the United States at some level. And then that's where you've got civil society that comes in. You've got faith-based organizations and others that are working together. Like the one I, the one that I'm working with is a faith-based organization. And I've signed up to volunteer, right, you know, in my, in my hometown, whether we'll get, you know, in, will my hometown receive different evacuees? Not necessarily, but in a, in potentially a neighboring city, we could, and and that's really exciting. So, you know, I think that there's a way. There are ways, and and also ways without necessarily. Sometimes people think that the only way they can help is is with funding, and funding is absolutely needed and and obviously desperately important. But there are other ways that people can contribute that are valuable and, and extremely valuable, like mentoring and like language assistance. And there are organizations that you can sign up, you know, to specifically help with the resettlement process in particular, because that's going to be another whole journey. You know, it's not just the evacuation and the exiting of a place. It's, it's, it's a long-term commitment to help. So, well, I hit two, two things. One, clearly this is not a partisan issue, right? It's a humanitarian issue. Absolutely And it's not. something mm-hmm. that is mm-hmm. one of those things that regardless of your political persuasion, I think we could all agree that we want the best for all people and we want people to be safe. And if they are trying to get out, you know, and, and they really are, are in need of help and what's going on there, the lack of you know, food and the fact that the country is is out of money, you know, and the fact that we left the Taliban with billions of dollars of of arsenal equipment, military equipment is is really unfortunate. And we know, you know, their their feelings on women. And so I don't think that any of that is a political, you know, is is politically a hot button issue. I think that, you know, we can all agree on on this. And so with that, what can we what can we all do? I mean, some people don't have 
the means. You said, you know, obviously the monetary support and some people don't have the time to commit to do something. Are there other ways for, are there organizations that you're able to mention that people can get involved with or sign up for updates or be able to, you know, if you do have the time or you do have the money to be able to help them? No, absolutely. And and just, I just want to go back to your point about, you know, I am working on, on such a bipartisan, you know, multi-party level on this issue. And that's actually, I think, been one of the greatest joys of this experience as it's been just the incredible people that I've encountered who are working in tandem as volunteers, you know, to, to help and assist. And, and, you know, I'm working, you know, with former, you know, CIA, I'm working with former military. I'm working also with numerous congressional offices of, you know, at, you know, every party to try and, and, you know, work on the situation. Everyone has the best interests at heart of, of the situation. And it, it truly has been a joy. And, and just to see, you know, people coming together in that respect, especially at a time when we're so divided. I love that. Right. It's unfortunate and, and, that it t- takes something like this, right? It's really unfortunate that it takes something that's right. so, so large and so sad to, to bring people together. Right. And that's what I think, you know, I think also that's the beauty of the trafficking, the trafficking issue is that it does bring together on a bipartisan, multi-party level you know, everyone from all persuasions to come together and talk about, you know, such a critical human rights issue. And it's an issue that has no party and has no, you know, it has no bounds. So I think, you know, it's, it's something that, you know, that's what makes it so uplifting. And even though it's such a dark and horrendous topic, you know, to work on, in terms of an organization that I can say that's, you know, working directly on assisting Afghan evacuees, I want to mention the Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service, LIRS, L-I-R-S dot org. They are a nonprofit faith-based organization that works to support refugees and migrants coming to the United States. And so they're specifically working and have a sign-up on their website of in the, and they'll break it down to, you know, where you're from in the United States. If you're, if you're out offering a volunteer in the United States and you can sign up based on your local area and it will say, if you are getting any evacuees to your area and they have a number of ways you can volunteer. Some things are to help shop for food. Some are to help the family set up an apartment. Some, there's also things where, you know, again, language and mentoring, but also if you have properties that you could offer for housing, you know, there's all different ways that even if you don't have the time, that if you can make the connections, I think would be hugely helpful. That's awesome. Others. That's great. Well, I I hope that everyone does their part because they're in a position that, you know, they didn't they didn't want to be in. They thought that for the past 20 years, things were going, you know, they still had to be concerned for their lives and their livelihoods and, and, you know, their safety. However, I don't think they expected this to happen so quickly. And so it is, it is wonderful to hear that you're working on such a 
in such a bipartisan manner and that there is support from both sides and that there's no fighting and there's no, that everyone's just on board. So it's wonderful. We need more of that in our society, more getting along and more working to solve some issues. So we're We're trying, (laughs) we're trying. I would say there are disagreements, but you know, we are trying and we're working also, you know, with government, you know, you know, I'm, I'm, um, you know, I think that it's important to have all actors involved and, you know, not only working with, you know, the U.S. government, but all the key stakeholders to try and, you know, work together to, to, you know, help where we can. And, you know, it's going to be interesting to see. And, you know, one of the things that I've learned from, you know, from this journey is that when you're looking at the population of Afghanistan as a whole, you've got some statistics say that, you know, it's 64% of the population is under 25. Wow it's just going to be extraordinary in some ways to see, you know, what those young people will do, you know, where they're headed. This population has, has only known this other type of government. And so what, you know, what is this like? I think it's important that we, you know, we work together in a coalition effort, you know, to try and, you know, address this and we're going to do what we can. I I think that that's, that is one on the age of, of the, the um, the average age of the the citizenry in Afghanistan. That's it's so amazing because sure they they were babies. Right. Some of them were babies. Some of them were born dur- during you know the past twenty years of of what life has been like. And to see where they go and to track them, I think will be really interesting in the future. And we, you know, wish, we wish you the best because thank you for doing what you do. It's really important. Another time we're going to have to talk about Mexico and talk about the border issue there and the trafficking that's going on there because that's a whole other issue. So get all your, get all your data that you can discuss and you can disclose because you're probably one of my, one of my guests who has the most sensitive job and the most sensitive information. But I think that that's also something that's really important and that just doesn't seem to stop either. So Christina, thank you very, very much for discussing Afghanistan and sharing the story of the young journalists that's there and, you know, and just talking about as much as you can talk about, because I think it's important for everyone to know that just, you know, just because they got a couple of planes out and some people out, it's still going on. And, and there's a lot of, a lot of concern for Afghanis both there and here for their families and for themselves. So, so thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course. Pleasure. Again, I thank Christina for being with me on Political Contessa to discuss something that I think is is fascinating and tragic at the same time. But also, what I want for you to know is that issues like this are the issues that we should rally around and put politics aside and rally around the fact that there are lives at stake here and we need to help and um, we shouldn't be in this situation. But now that 
these folks are in a situation that they're in, we need to do all we can to try to make sure that they are safe and they are reunited with the family members that they could be reunited with. Thanks so much for listening to Political Contessa. For all the ways to listen and to get the inside scoop on what's happening in center-right politics for women like us, head over to politicalcontessa.com. Thank you.